welcome to the American Exception Podcast. I'm Aaron Good, and this is a special episode for the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. I'm lucky to have historian and author James DiEugenio with us again. Jim is one of the most respected, prolific, and indefatigable researchers and writers on the political assassinations of the 1960s, especially the JFK assassination. He's the author of two books, Destiny Betrayed and the JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, with Oliver Stone, Jim is also the co-author of JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, which is uh, the book of the documentary film. Jim DiGenio is the co-author of The Assassinations, along with Lisa Pease. He also co-edited, and there were a few other authors of The Assassinations as well, like Jim Douglas uh, has a great essay on Malcolm X, and there's a number of other people in there like Donald Gibson. So get The Assassinations if you don't have it. Uh, Jim DiGenio also co-edited Probe Magazine from 1993 to 2000. As part of his relentless pursuit of JFK justice, DiGenio has made regular appearances on Leno Sanic's Black Op Radio podcast for more than a decade. Here on the 60th anniversary, we're going to be talking about a new book from James DiGenio, Paul Blow, Matt Crumpton, Andrew Eiler, and Mark Adamchik. The book is called Chokeholds, or the full title, The JFK Assassination Chokeholds That Prove There Was a Conspiracy. Check out the show notes for links to the new book. Kim Eugenio, it's an honor to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Aaron. So you have been, as ever, working on the Kennedy assassination and writing about it. You have a, pro a new project uh, here for the 60th anniversary, which is coming up very shortly here. This will probably air on the, on the day of. And uh, your new book on this that you are co-writer for is The JFK Assassination, Chokeholds That Prove There Was a Conspiracy. So it just goes by sort of chokeholds. I mean, you could just call it chokeholds. That's the short title, right. The short title. But the proper and, title is The JFK Assassination Chokeholds. Yes. Yes. So I have what I have read of this is very persuasive. Uh, but could you tell us about how, uh, tell us the idea behind the, the title and the book and how it came about and uh, give us a... a well, a this, is how, this is how that title came about. Um... Paul Blue, who was in JFK Revisited, uh, was talking with the legendary re uh, researcher Malcolm Blunt over in England, all right? And they were talking about the JFK case and the filing system that the CIA used on Oswald. And I had written about this before because Malcolm had sent me the documents from Betsy Wolf, who investigated this for the House Select Committee, which, by the way, did not write about her work, did not include her work in the volumes. And so Malcolm explained it to him and said, see, that's a chokehold. That's something the other side cannot get out of, okay, no matter what arguments they make, because it's just simply inexplicable as to why they did that, all right? And so that's what gave Paul the idea to write a book about multiple chokeholds. We have about 10 of them in the book, things that are just so inexplicable 
that they, the combination of them uh, exonerate Oswald, all right? Now, this particular one, let me explain it if I haven't been on your show to talk about it. Bessie Wolf was the analyst on the House Select Committee. One of her functions was to go ahead and write up the Oswald file at CIA. So she asked for a charter from each division of the CIA. I think there's like nine of them. All right. She read through each charter. She then wrote down, well, based on this information, this is what Oswald's file should do. And she wrote down like a, a little graph as to what should have happened. So then she asked for the file. And she was very surprised because it didn't do anything like what it should have done. Okay? Oswald's file should have gone to the Soviet Russian division. It didn't. It went to the Office of Security. One thing about the Office of Security is it does not open a 201 file. All right? A 201 file is sometimes called an information file. It's the most common file in the CIA. It's where people go to get information about any subject or any person that they're interested in. Well, there was no 201 file open on Oswald for 13 months. All right. So she found this very, very interesting. And so she started calling people in, okay, to try and explain, when, A, Shouldn't Oswald have referred it to a one file? And B, shouldn't his file have gone to the SR division? And they agreed with her. Yes, there should have been a 201 file. His he had all the earmarks of having, you know, a general interest to the agency. Okay, he had gone abroad, he had more or less defected. He had even offered the secrets of the U2 to the Soviets. So yeah. <laughs> he should have had a 201 file open. Yeah, All right. can you can you explain again the significance of the SR and the and the Office of Security? Okay. SR means Soviet Russia Division. So that dealt with anything going on in the Soviet Union at that time. Okay. There was a way for the United States to get information, okay, about through whatever they had, you know, like spy technology. Uh, informants, listing devices, etc. Okay? All right. And so Oswald's file should have gone there, all right, you know, to keep them informed of any Americans that were in the Soviet Union. Now, the Office of Security— Because, because there, there weren't that many— there weren't that many people who were Marine officers with security <laughs> no. clearances who no. had defected to Russia and who had said things like, I'm going to give— military secrets to the soviets right like that seems so this, that's this provocative is, right if yes you're, you're and, exactly and america correct. the security the cia was not known for being laid back about having a cool attitude about communism right i mean right. they weren't like that's not typical now the office of security that's different because that's more internal yeah that deals within the walls of the cia all right you know and and it is sort of what it does. It's supposed to protect itself 
from any external threats. So, of course, they wouldn't be big on opening 201 files. Okay, they would want to keep all their intelligence inside. Okay, they, they don't want to have any exposure. So, this is what Betsy was faced with. All right, you know, why, uh, why didn't A, Oswald's file not go to the SR division? And secondly, why was there no 201 file open? All right, so she began asking questions. She began calling people in. And like I said, they agreed with her. There should have been a 201 file. It should have gone to the SR division. Finally, in the autumn of 1978, a few months before the House Select Committee was going to be uh, seasoned assist, he talked to a guy named Richard Gambino. Richard Gambino at that time was the head of the Office of Security. He had the position currently. <clears throat> and he told her that, look, it doesn't matter how many copies of a document you submit, and it doesn't matter if they're stamped. If the client goes to the Office of Mail Logistics, which is the first gate entering the CIA, okay, and if he says, I want these documents sent here, that's where they will go. So... This is why I think it wasn't in the House Select Committee reports, because what this indicates is that somebody had rigged Oswald's file from the beginning, from the time that he went and defected to the Soviet Union. And whoever did it did not want a 201 file opened up on Oswald for whatever reason. Okay, they wanted to keep this thing secret, all right? And so this is one of the things, like I said, this is how the book got its name, all right? And this is what uh, Malcolm said to him was a chokehold. It was simply something that was inexplicable, all right, to, to anyone studying this case. Why would a 19-year-old near-do-well like Oswald, have so much interest in him by the CIA that they would do something like this at the very beginning. You know, uh, it, it, it's, it's really, really inexplicable. And, and to, to, what's really mind-boggling when you think about it, if it wasn't for the ARB, because Betsy's work was on a deferred schedule. In other words, once the ARB closed down, they put documents on a deferred schedule as to what year they could be declassified. I believe Betsy's was 2001, okay? If Malcolm would not have found that, if it wasn't for the ARB, we would have never known about the work of Betsy Wolf, which I believe is very, very important into understanding the whole mystery of Oswald. Did she ever write any sort of, ex I mean, I don't want to say executive, but like summary 
to be included with her work where she tries to make sense of all this or is this does is it mostly the did oh, Malcolm oh, mostly Aaron, look I'm at really her glad investigation asked, i'm really glad you asked that question because you know what's even more odd about her files from what i saw they were never transferred into typed form they're in her handwriting okay which is incredible okay in other words they were never typed into memoranda form all right and she and or if so, they were or if they were those were 86. i have not seen them okay and if malcolm blunt hasn't seen them they're probably not there right. okay all right so this is another very very odd phenomenon about because her work is a hell of a lot more important than anything in the in the hsc volumes about about oswald okay but the fact that they left the elephant in the room outside you know i think is kind of revealing you know uh in my opinion but let's put it this way that's not the only thing they did like that though i mean they did that oh, with yeah, the, you're bethesda, exactly the bethesda witnesses too yeah well, well and we're gonna get to that okay see in other words if betsy wolf's work would have been published in 1978 or 79 we wouldn't have had to wait for john newman's book in 1995 okay to understand this stuff about oswald all right and, and, yeah, it, and sounds to like, me, it's, it sounds like a very similar thing to the to the jeff yes. morley story with like what was it ann goodpasher or jane roman who would they get to confess that like yeah somebody had an operational interest in oswald's file right it was being closely held yeah so this is i mean the fact that it was upon his defection to this let me see if i'm summarizing this correctly that the work of Betsy Wolf in looking at all these files and then actually tracking down the right people to speak to people who would have been, uh, you know, aware of the way the filing system worked by default and then how it might have to be changed for special circumstances. She was able to determine that from the time that Oswald defected, her the the files on Oswald, which which should have necessitated the creation of a two hundred one file. Then the fact that he does that that is not, and that we find also that his file is that all information about him is routed to the office of security instead of the Soviet Russian division, right? That this Correct. is, this suggests that from the, that somebody had an interest in Oswald that really wasn't related to things pertaining to Soviet Russia, which, because if it had been a genuine defection or whatever, then you would expect the Soviet Russian side would be brought into this conversation and they would have been trying to figure out, who who this person was and there would be some kind of paper trail of like of that correct i mean is yes, that implied I, I, or? I i i believe that is pretty well founded in the facts you know you're you are not speculating very far at all okay you know because it's very let's put it this way if you look at if you look at betsy's notes the people in the CIA were as puzzled as she was, okay, <laughs> as yeah. to what as as to what the heck was going on here, and if she would have never interviewed Gambino, you know, she probably would have never found out what the heck really happened, you know, and when and what was going on, you know. So yes, I I I I believe that that is all very very logical, you know, and rational as to explain what the heck was going on with this Oswald guy at the CIA. You know, it's very, you know, 
to say that it's very revealing, I think, is not giving it enough justice, you know, what our discoveries really were. You know, they open up the most fundamental questions, and they and for a change, we actually have the actual data to back up these fundamental questions, all right? And unfortunately, it's too late for them to be answered. Yeah, definitively. I mean, I this does get into the area of like, what in the world do we do with this information now? If you were even going to have a fact-finding panel, I mean, of course, you could release all documents, but you know, at some point, you're going to want a, a body vested with some authority and, and transparency to really try to make an honest conclusion of this. You know, based on what we do have, because this is the the people that had the power to do this have had have been also the ones in charge of all the evidence. That, that we would want so mm -hmm. it's it's quite extraordinary when you when you think about this yeah um, and here here we are 59.9 years later okay and we're still left with these questions you know let's let's put it this way the whole portrait of oswald drawn by the warren commission was to say the least very very incomplete okay <laughs> And right. to, think, to think that David Bellin used to say, if you remember him from the Warren Commission, I saw every CIA file on Oswald. Okay, well, David, I guess you left this out. Okay, were you hiding something? You know? <laughs> right. So let, let's talk about some of these other, the other chapters here that you, that you consider other chokeholds. I mean, are there any other, well, but first, are there any other, things in this book that that are pretty explosive that you'd like to to talk about here early on there's one fbi report that we have and we got it from jeff meek who's a, a columnist okay he interviewed the daughter of an fbi analyst okay and was one of the very first people uh to test the uh for particles uh on the close of John F. Kennedy. And according to him, there were bullet fragment traces on the back of the shirt. There weren't any on the front of the shirt. Okay. And that test was very, very much hidden. Okay. Because obviously, obviously, if there were none on the front of the shirt, did the back wound penetrate? Okay, did it go all the way through the body? You know, and if it didn't, then maybe Paul Landis is correct. Okay, you know, with his uh, very late arriving revelation about finding a bullet in the back seat of the Kennedy limousine. Because maybe sometimes bullets don't have enough explosive power to go and penetrate through the whole body. We call that, it's called a perforating wound. A penetrating wound is one that goes all the way through. A perforating wound is a bullet that gets stuck, okay? So maybe this is a backup for Paul Landis, all right? So that's another, you know, very, very uh, new thing. Another thing that Andrew Eiler did, which I had never seen in any other Kennedy book. He wrote about 
standards of proof in a legal case, all right? And he differentiated between the, what are the three standards, that is, proving a case by preponderance of the evidence, proving a case by a clear and convincing standard, and third, beyond a reasonable doubt. And he explained how these standards apply. And you know what's so interesting? About beyond a reasonable doubt, in his research, that standard arose in British colonial times because the community did not want to have the collective guilt of sending an innocent man to his death. That was the reason that it arose. And as I'm reading that, I go, could anything be more applicable to the Oswald case? You know, than, than the origins of that standard? You know, a collective guilt about what had happened, you know, to an innocent man. Okay, and so I'd never seen that anywhere before. Okay, but Andrew went ahead and, and, and he did that for us, all right? Um, there's very, very interesting stuff about the number of people who objected to the official story who were actually inside the government, okay? And this was, uh, I think Paul Blow did this one, all right? And it's very surprising, all right? Uh, there's many, many more than you would imagine, okay, who would actually objected to what was the official story in the Kennedy case, all right? And now we have this new stuff coming out about John Sherman Cooper, all right, who evidently was more disturbed about it than he had let on before. In the 1970s, Cooper did an interview with the BBC, and he admitted that he, Richard Russell, and Hale Boggs did not buy the single bullet theory. They had severe reservations about it. But according to this administrative aide, okay, who's essentially just come out, okay, these objections were even stronger than he had led on to before, all right? So what this proves is that the Warren Commission was a minority report. What do I mean by that? You, you had Richard Russell, who thought his objections were going to be recorded, but they were not. You had... Cooper. He even he even presented them. I mean that that's really a remarkable right, thing. Right. But they were not recorded. All right. All right. Then you had Hale Boggs. All right. And then, as we show in the film JFK Revisited, Gerald Ford, okay, uh, admitted to Destang, the former premier of France, okay, that they knew that some kind of organization was behind the assassination, but we could never pinpoint who it was. So in other words, you had four people on the Warren Commission who didn't believe their own conclusions. You know, because, and, and again, I this is Assassination 101, and you probably know this as well as I do, but maybe for some listeners. If you don't have the single bullet theory, you have a conspiracy. Okay, even Norman Redlick, 
who was on the Warren Commission and wrote a lot of the commission report, admitted that, okay? And that's another thing we have in the book. I don't know if you read this part. Arlen Specter admitted to Edward Epstein, and by the way, Epstein never wrote about this until this year, okay? Arlen Specter said, because Epstein asked him, why didn't the Secret Service come up with the single bullet theory when they were doing their modeling of the case. And Spectre says, because they didn't know that unless you have a single bullet theory, you have to have a, a, a different shooter. You have to look for a second assassin. And so Epstein asked him, well, did you present this to the commission? And he said, yes, I did. I showed them the uh, Zapruder film in slow motion and I said, we either go with the single bullet theory or here in April of 1964, six months after the crime, we have to start looking for a second assassin. Now, if that's the kind of investigation you're going to run, okay, we have to rely on the magic bullet, CE399, or we look for a second assassin. What do you think the reply is going to be? Do you really think those guys are going to go out and start hunting for the second assassin? You know, probably not. Okay, so this is what the Warren Commission really was, fundamentally, all right? I mean, that's pretty amazing. Epstein has always been a shady character. I mean, he was a guy who really seemed to, he wrote one of the earlier um, crit critiques, right? Inquest or something like that? Inquest, for the, right. For the Warren Commission, but then he kind of became like a, a, a conduit for Angleton to put out like Soviet stuff, and he seems to have been involved in some way with the undoing of George DeMorenschild. I mean, what, what's Epstein's angle now writing about this stuff? Well, this was in his book that he published earlier this year, Assume Nothing, okay? And is, is, is I, he, he going to say more about the Russians? Is this what we're building up to? Is he going to say, like, it was a Soviet plot that they covered up? <laughs> but he did a chapter on how he came to write Inquest in that book. All right. And and he actually revealed this, which, look, I've read almost I think I've read all of Epstein's book on the Kennedy's assassination. He has a compendium called the Kennedy Chronicles. OK, I had never seen him reveal that before until now. OK, I think when Spectre was dead, OK, he felt that he could go ahead and reveal that. But in my in my opinion, that more or less gives away the story. You know, I mean, if, if that's what your investigating uh, standard was, you didn't have an investigating standard. It was either throw everything up against the wall to support the magic bullet or cover up what really happened. And they decided to cover up what really happened. chapter on the mystery of Kennedy's brain as a guide to how screwed up the autopsy was at Bethesda that night, all right? Um, I've, I've become very interested in this subject because of what Doug Horn wrote about when he was working for the ARB. 
And should we explain what the ARB was? Or do most of your listeners know? Uh, they probably know, but a quick summary about, about it. They know right. about When, when Oliver Stone's, Stone's movie came listeners. out, okay, this created an uproar because they didn't know that the House Select Committee files were still under seal. And so when Oliver put that in his movie, this created a sensation throughout the country, and they held hearings in Congress. I, I really think Oliver Stone is the only guy who ever made a movie that caused congressional hearings in the House and the Senate, all right? And so they created something called the Assassinations Record Review Board, which was meant to declassify the last of the Kennedy files, all right? And so the ARB was also allowed to investigate certain areas of evidence where there seemed to be paradoxes, okay? And so Jeremy Gunn, the chief counsel, and Doug Horn, who was in charge of the military records, decided to go ahead and investigate aspects of the autopsy because it was at a military institution, Bethesda Medical Center. Doug Horn wrote an essay. And this essay, which was focused on Kennedy's brain, okay, he makes some of the most startling assertions, and he has evidence to back it up, that the brain that we see in illustrations and pictures is very likely not Kennedy's brain. So this is something that really kind of interested me at the time. And I, I, uh, I decided to go ahead and write this essay in the JFK assassination chokeholds. In my view, in my considered opinion, I believe this is one of the hallmarks of the JFK case today, that SmackDown proves that there was a conspiracy, all right, and just how deep it went and how the kind of uh, subterfuges they were willing to use in order to disguise what really happened during his assassination. There's three levels of evidence on this, and I wrote about all of them in the book. The first is the pictures, excuse me, the official weight of Kennedy's brain, which is 1,500 grams, okay? The average weight of a brain is 1,340 grams. Kennedy's brain is about 150, 160 grams over the average. Now, how can that be considering the fact that A, if you take the film and photographic evidence, Kennedy's head explodes in blood and tissue at the time of the assassination, Z-frame 313. If you take a look at the pictures of the back seat, there's all this blood and tissue, you know, and that has to be from JFK because Jackie wasn't hit, all right? If you go ahead and look at the Zapruder film, Jackie Kennedy is reaching back on the trunk of the car because part of Kennedy's brain had gone ahead and been blasted off toward, and she actually found it, and she actually kept it, and she gave it to a doctor at Parkland Hospital. The cyclist on the left side, the cyclist on the left side, got hit with a piece of Kennedy's brain so hard he thought he'd been hit by a projectile, all right? So how on earth can Kennedy's brain weigh more than the average 
when it's being dispersed all through Dealey Plaza, all right? And so then, in my opinion, the very, very most interesting testimony that they got was from John Stringer. John Stringer was the autopsy official photographer. When he was confronted with the pictures of Kennedy's brain, he said, this is Ansco. Ansco is a type of film, okay, a brand. He said, I didn't use Ansco. I used Kodak, all right? And you see these numbers here on the bottom? This means that this was taken in a series called a press pack. I didn't use a press pack. And so Jeremy Gunn then asked him, are you ready to deny you took these pictures? And he said, if that's Ansco, and if that's a press pack, and by the way, it was Ansco, okay, then no, I didn't take these pictures. All right? All right? Now, finally, the last layer of evidence is there's about 12 or 13 people between Bethesda and Parkland who all recalled seeing a severely damaged brain. Some of them even said that there was about one-third of it missing. So again, Aaron, how can you be missing one-third of Kennedy's brain and have the brain weight come in at 160 grams above average? And so this is what I wrote about in one of my essays in the book because I truly believe and by the way, this has gotten even worse now. We, were, we, we, we barely added an addendum to that article, which said that the ARB interviewed two witnesses, okay, who said that they had seen Kennedy's brain at the, uh, at the, at the uh, AFIP, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, which is a building on the same grounds but very far away from the JFK Medical Center, all right? So here's my question. If Kennedy's brain was at the AFIP, what was buried in the ground, okay? You know, because Admiral Berkeley asked for Kennedy's brains from Humes to bury in the ground on, I believe, it was the 24th, okay? So here we have, again, 59 years later, 59 years later, we're still trying to figure out the mystery of what happened to John F. Kennedy's brain. And so this is one, one thing I wrote about in the book. Right. I mean, that is, that it just seems very obvious that, that that's something untoward has happened with his brain uh, and it, it even gets into other areas of evidence which are also even more controversial like the Zapruder film itself it does show that there's an explosion but even the explosion that's shown in the Zapruder film it looks like it would have been flying towards the front seat yeah you know and then so how does it all end up in the you know the way that it does I just, I find the whole thing bizarre, <clears throat> and it seems like pretty clear that he was, between the people describing the wounds in the back of the head and the missing brain and the fact they can't find the brain, uh, and Jackie picking up the skull, the guy said, or a piece of the skull, the guy saying that he got hit behind Kennedy, it's just like everything points to 
uh, all efforts after the fact being geared towards trying to, uh, you know, stretch this in a Procrustean way to fit like single bullet or, you know, single bullet theory and one and a shooter from behind, uh, even no matter how much overwhelming evidence there is to, to contradict that. See, uh, you hit on it towards the end there. I believe that the reason they did this charade was because the original Kennedy's brain would have shown, A, multiple head wounds, and B, wounds from two different directions. That's yeah. why I think... Because to add on to this, to, and this is also very revealing, Kennedy's brain was never sectioned. Right. Okay. All right. Doug says there's evidence it might have been, but that was hidden and deep-sixed. But in the official record, Kennedy's brain was never sectioned. And let me explain what that means. In a bullet wound autopsy, especially through the skull, you section the brain. That means you go ahead and cut it, all right, into certain sections. There's two methods to do it. There's what they call the pie manner, in which you cut it diagonally, all right? And there's what they call the bread loaf manner, where you cut it serially. Now, why do you do this? Because you want to find out, all right, the directionality of the bullet wounds, okay? And also, if they penetrated, if they went all the way through the brain. Also, was there more than one bullet path? Okay, if you if you don't section the brain, all right, then how do you resolve those kinds of questions? They're very, very difficult. And in fact, when I did my pre-interview with Henry Lee, okay, uh, for the film JFK Revisited, we we asked this question, all right, and he said, you cannot do a trajectory analysis in the JFK case. And so I said, well, why not? And he said, because neither wound was dissected. Neither wound was tracked. If a wound is not tracked, then you cannot really speak with authority on how and why or if, you know, it went through certain points and whether it penetrated the body. So you can't do a trajectory analysis. And by the way, it's really shocking when you think about that with Kennedy's back wound, because once you go with the single bullet theory, you have to have <laughs> coming in at Kennedy's back and exiting the neck, okay? Which, as I said, Henry Lee doesn't buy because even that wound was never tracked, all right? Right. All right, and not, n never dissected. So as far as he's, and by the way, he said it's, if, if you're not going to dissect a wound, then what you're doing is essentially guesswork, okay? It might be good guesswork, it might be bad guesswork, but it's essentially guesswork. I mean, right? it's just, it seems like that would be the perfunctory thing you would do for a gunshot victim in a, oh, yeah. in, a, in a gangland shooting. I mean, if you would do it, there's no reason not to do it. Much less yeah, it's, it's, when the person well, is the, well, we'll see, the high official. See, now we're getting into the testimony of Pierre Fink at the Clay Shaw trial. 
okay, you know, which was more or less discarded and buried, all right? When they asked him this question, all right, because Pierre Fink was one of the three pathology doctors there that night, the other two being uh, Boswell and Humes. And they asked him, all right, Garrison's lawyers asked him, why did you not dissect Kennedy's back wound? And he didn't want to answer the question, okay? And this went on for at least a minute, okay? And the attorney kept on re-asking him the question. And finally, the attorney had to turn to the judge and say, could you, or Your Honor, could you please ask the witness to, to, to answer the question? And he said, words of the effect, that he was prevented by doing the dissection of the back wound by certain military people who were in the room at the time. Now, Aaron, this was buried at the time. It should have been on the front pages of every newspaper in the country, okay, but it was buried at the time. But I can tell you, because of the documents released by the ARB, Washington went crazy when, <laughs> when Fink said that on the stand. The, the guy monitoring the trial for the Department of Justice blew his stack and said, Pierre is screwing everything up. Yeah, so he's telling the truth, okay, and that means he's screwing everything up, okay? And they actually flew down Boswell to New Orleans to discredit Pierre Fink. They actually flew him down there. Harry Connick met him. He was the Department of Justice lawyer in New Orleans at the time, okay? Put him up in a hotel room, gave him the transcript, but they didn't call him as a witness, okay? Gary Aguilar thinks they didn't call him because if he would have taken the stand, Garrison would have shown the jury that Fink was more qualified <laughs> as a recent autopsy pathologist than Boswell was, okay? So you'd have had a little problem, you know, presenting Boswell's credentials versus Fink, all right? I mean, isn't but, it also disturbing, not just that he was told to do that during the autopsy, not that he was instructed not to dissect the, the, the wound, but also the fact that he would have had the presence of mind later or had had had, had it explained to him that this needed to be the case, uh, that when he's asked the question on the witness stand and he's taken an oath and he doesn't want to perjure himself, he's still trying to avoid even answering the question. So he knows, it shows that he knows that there's something quite um, suspicious, sinister, untoward about his, yes. about what he was ordered to do there. And he, he wasn't the one who made that decision. And even then he wants to protect the people that put him in that position. I mean, it just points to this being a, 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 an act from people in, in power. Yes, yes. And I'm and I'm 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 really uh, I'm really glad that um, that the ARB went that far in their medical investigation, okay? Because again, that was something we didn't know. We didn't know the Department of Justice was monitoring the trial in real time, and that they were taking remedial measures, you know, to shore up anything, you know, that came out of the trial. And in fact, Jeremy Gunn asked Boswell that question. 
Jeremy Gunn was the chief counsel for the ARB. And he said, what was the Department of Justice doing siding with a defendant in a criminal case under the auspices of the county of New Orleans, the parish of New Orleans? And if I remember correctly, Boswell said something, well, everybody knows that, the, you know, that Washington was against Garrison. Okay, words to that effect. Well, that, that's a mild understatement, that Washington was against Garrison. Okay. Uh, so that was that. That's what his reply was to that question, but it's a perfectly decent question. What on earth is the Department of Justice doing, intervening in a in a state case on the defendant's side? You know, very very bizarre. Right. I mean, this, there's no real innocent explanation for it. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit because there's a chapter in here that I think is uh, we haven't talked about as much on past shows, uh, and it deals with uh, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and some of these other plots. So, because this is also another damning and, and, and very uncanny and disturbing aspect of this case, the Fair Fair Play for Cuba connections to other plots and just the other plots in general. Why do you think that these constitute a chokehold? Uh, in the, in this case, <laughs> Paul Blow wrote this one. Paul did a three part series at Kennedy'sandking.com, uh, the, the website that I edit and publish, in which he examined the prior plots against Kennedy, and he enumerated how many of them involved the Fair Play for Cuba committee. All right, it's it's rather astonishing. There's, there's something like, I think Paul listed something like 24 attempts on Kennedy's life, maybe more. Nine of them involved the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Now, how on earth could, could that possibly not indicate a method of operation? Okay, all right, uh, off the top, uh, for example, Gilberto how, many, how many members of the Fair Play community? That's another really interesting question. Okay, because Paul thought at first there might have been something like three to five thousand in 1963. He later found out that the number was half of that. Okay, you know, so if and you what have percentage a group of, of that like were 50, actually what 50, percentage were actually informants anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a group of 1,500 people. And nine of them end up being involved in these <laughs> attempted. What are the odds of that happening? You know, that that's that's very, very weird. It must okay. be a terrorist organization of some kind. Well, <laughs> it, 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 I think what Paul has concluded is that it was essentially a front. You know, by 1963, certainly it, it had been so infiltrated okay, uh, that it was essentially a front for the CIA, all right? Um, but there's, for example, Gilberto Lopez. Gilberto Lopez in the Tampa plot, okay? This was like a 26-mile motorcade through the city of Tampa, landing at the Floridian Hotel, all right? Gilberto Lopez was a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. 
he had a very interesting itinerary because after Tampa, he went to Texas. I believe it was in Dallas-Fort Worth on the day of the assassination. He then went to Mexico. He then flew on a plane. I believe he was the only passenger to Cuba. All right. Now, I believe that's kind of an unusual itinerary. Okay, so you would say, you know, from Tampa, where there's a suspected plot, to Texas, to Mexico City, to Cuba after the assassination. All right, this is what some people thought that Oswald was trying to do, getting to Cuba after the assassination. All right, so Gilberto Lopez, then there's Von Marlowe. Von was there, whatever was there ever any follow up on what happens to Lopez after he goes to Cuba? I mean, or speculation about it? The House Select I mean... Committee, the House Select Committee wrote about this. Okay, they said it was a very egregious lack of investigation by the Warren Commission of Gilberto Lopez because his case was so extraordinary. He should have been investigated. Okay, and he was not. And by but by the way, you can Google Gilberto Lopez's name today, and you'll see stories that he was a patsy before Oswald. They're headed with that headline. Okay, you know. Uh, so then you have Von Marlow. Von Marlow's written about in *The Man Who Knew Too Much*, Dick Russell's book about Nagel, Richard Case Nagel. He was a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Nagel visited with Von Marlow, okay, in his investigation of the Kennedy assassination, because in his opinion, there was going to be an attempt on, on, on Kennedy's life in Los Angeles, all right? Okay, so, uh, and there's about four or five others that were, now we know about the Fair Play for Cuba Committee with Oswald, all right? Now, just listen to this for a minute. When Oswald returns from Russia, his best friend in Dallas-Fort Worth becomes George de Morinchild, okay? A white Russian. So here you have these, a communist, an alleged communist, hanging out with a white Russian, George de Morinchild. The Warren Commission says that Oswald took a shot at Walker, although in the seven or eight months between the Walker shooting and the assassination, nobody even suspected Oswald did. So then he goes to New Orleans. Once he's in New Orleans, he writes the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And he says, I'm going to open up a chapter. And they say, no. No, no, no. We don't want to open up a chapter in New Orleans. <laughs> and, and he does anyway. And he goes out in public in broad daylight. Okay. You know, on some of the major thoroughfares like Canal Street, right? right? Ostensibly doing organizing work for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. But if you look at what he did, there was no substantive organizational work being done whatsoever. He basically is involved in just spectacles where he is discrediting the Fair Play for Cuba Community by, Community or Committee by getting into a fight with Cuban exiles and then later going on the radio and being revealed to be a a person who had defected to the Soviet Union and a Marxist-Leninist. So, I mean, it's the worst organizing work unless he wasn't <laughs> doing organizing work at all. And nobody goes to travel to another country 
or another, I'm sorry, to travel hours away from home, get an apartment, just to randomly do some left-wing agitating in, in the most ham-fisted way possible while hanging out with right-wingers. I mean, I'm sorry, it's a little bit of, a, of, an, of an aside, but like, my God. So this is the payoff, though. Like you mentioned, he starts getting publicity. He's in the newspapers. He's on the radio. TV crews come down, and they and they film him in front of Clay Shaw's international trademark. All right, and he does a TV, a, a, a kind of like uh, early forerunner of uh, of of, of, a, of a public TV debate with, of all people, Ed Butler and <laughs> Carlos Bringier, two of the big you know anti Castro guys in New Orleans. All right, which is just amazing. All right, and, and, and then, of course, here's the capper. On the day of the assassination, what happens? All that coverage gets into the media, instantly branding him as a pro-Castro Cuban advocate, and this is supposed to be the reason that he killed Kennedy. Now, if anybody believes that this was simply a coincidence, okay, I got some beachfront property in Alaska, you know, that I'd like to sell you. It's it's too much of a stretch of imagination for that to be all of a all, all of a coincidence. You know, I believe, and Paul writes about this in the book, okay, that this was part of the setup, you know, for Oswald. And let me say one other thing. We mentioned Gilberto Lopez in Tampa. I don't know if we mentioned the Chicago plot, but that was another attempt to kill Kennedy in early November of 1963. If you add these up, Kennedy was not getting out of 1963. You know, they were going to get him, you know, one way or the other. You know, and, and you, can, you can actually say that what happened in Dallas was a refinement of the of the prior plots to kill Kennedy, which now they had down to pretty much the way that they wanted it with all the bugs taken out. Right. It seems to be that way. And as far as the Fair Play for Cuba Committee stuff goes, and you mentioned Richard, um, Richard Case Nagel, I mean, he had, didn't he have materials from the Fair Play of, uh, for yes. Cuba Committee that Oswald yeah. had given him that are like, can't really be explained uh, with uh, without reference to Nigel having had some foreknowledge of Oswald's, mm -hmm. you know, sensitive position in all of this. I mean, how, what was what exactly did Nigel have that? Nigel, because well, I, I do Nigel recall that he had something FPCC related from Oswald. Yeah, Nigel had these documents, you know, that were pro Castro documents. In I'm not sure if they were actually FPCC documents. He also had a mini camera, okay, that like the one that uh, that Oswald had, okay. You know, the, the, he uh, I think Oswald I I know Oswald had a Minix camera, okay. Well, he had a miniature camera in in his uh, in in his car also. Plus, he had the name of several CIA guys, okay, uh, listed in his address book. All right, and we know. We know that he told the arresting officer, you know, words of the effect, 
I'd rather be in jail than to be in Dallas, you know, next month or something like that. You know, so, the, the you know, Jim Garrison always said after his meeting with Nigel that words of the effect that Nigel was the most important witness there was, okay, in, in his opinion. You know, there's other people you can argue for, like Sylvia Odio, like maybe John Martino, maybe Malcolm Perry. But in his opinion, Nigel was the most important witness that there was, all right? And if you recall, Nigel was actually going to testify at the Clay Shaw trial. Somebody threw a hand grenade at him in New York. He brought the what was left of the hand grenade down to New Orleans, and he told Garrison, I don't think it's going to be a good idea for me to testify at the Clay Shaw trial. Okay. <laughs> These are the kind of things that were happening to Garrison's witness. Uh, you know, on the eve of the Shaw trial. Right, because Nigel's, I mean, his, he, t he speaks about having had, um, that he was essentially working with the Soviets at some point or some aspect yes. of Soviet intelligence to try. Yeah, that's, to a, that's a very good point. Okay, see, the reason Nigel was investigating the Kennedy assassination is because the KGB had called him down to Mexico. All right. And they had told him, we understand that there's a plot to kill Kennedy, all right, that's in the win. We think that whoever's going to do this is going to try and blame it on us, all right? And this might endanger the world, okay? We might get into a World War III kind of situation, all right? So we want you to track down what's going on and inform us of what's really happening. And if you have to eliminate who they plan on setting up for it, then we want you to do that. Okay. And so that's what happened. Okay. That's how Nigel got started on this, this whole mission to stop Kennedy's assassination. You know, uh, it's really a, a Dick, the second edition of Dick Russell's book, The Man Who Knew Too Much, I think the first edition is too long, okay, but the second edition of his book is, is, is really quite good. I think it's about 490 pages. The first one was about 800 or 900 pages, yeah, but he trimmed it down, uh, and it's much, it's much more readable. So, but uh, anyway, getting back to the subject, Paul Blow did this extraordinary work on the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and he got a lot of it out of Garrison's files, okay? Like, for example, if you recall the host of the debate between Bringier, Ed Butler, and, and Oswald, it was a guy named Bill Stuckey, okay? Bill Stuckey had always tried to say he had nothing to do with the FBI or the CIA. Well, it turns out that, get this, in 1962, he wrote the FBI and asked words of the effect, do you know of any Fair Play for Cuba Committee organizers in New Orleans? Let me repeat that. In 1962, he wrote a letter to the FBI asking if you know of any Fair Play for Cuba Committee organizers in New Orleans. This is like 10 months 
before the debate. Also, Oswald was sending away for FPCC literature while he was in Dallas before he ever got to New Orleans. I mean, how much evidence do you need that something is a pre-planned provocation? Back to this Gil- Gilberto Lopez angle, because I think that this is related to this to the way that this was done. Do you? Th- it seems that if he was sent out to go, I mean, if he left from Mexico to go to Cuba after the assassination, that he was in Dallas at that time. Do you think that he was set up as either a, as a patsy in case they needed one, or as a person who would potentially be a second shooter if they needed? I mean, I guess that would make him a patsy, well, but a Paul- co-patsy. I mean, this is what seems to be kind of the perfect. I mean, it seems too perfect to be. That's an impossible coincidence that he leaves for Cuba from Mexico, given all this. Well, well, see, the thing is, you to get into Cuba, you had to go to Mexico, okay, because you couldn't do it from the United States, all right. And so, for so Gilberto had to do that. Now, why he would be the only passenger on, on the flight. And why he felt he had to flee to Cuba are very interesting questions. And Paul Blow says that he believes that if they needed a shot from the front, that's why he went to Texas. Okay, if they if they needed to admit they needed to be able to explain a shot from the front. Right. So you had two fair play for Cuba committee guys involved in the. In other words, it was an FPCC conspiracy. Okay, that's that's what it was. It was made to order. You know? And that makes it more, I mean, by allowing him to go get away and make it to Cuba, then it actually does put the, raise the risk of a nuclear confrontation. Right, you know? I mean, right. Because then you, they can, well, if we start talking about a second shooter, we know who went to Mexico. It was a fair play for Cuba committee and a communist sympathizer, and it's, you know, and immediately when the assassination happens, there are these things that come out right away from the DRE, right, from DRE people implicating, uh, trying to implicate Castro and Cuba in the assassination. But the other part of that is that Frank Sturgis is putting out stuff immediately linking Oswald to Cuba uh, on the day, you know, pretty much on the day of the assassination. That's what led Peter Dale Scott to uh, look into Watergate is because he was already looking at Sturgis at the time that the Watergate burglars got arrested, and he just said, "Like, holy shit, this is some. These, I've been looking into this guy already." Uh, and so he wrote that Ramparts article, you know, in like '73 or something, talking about this stuff. They really were trying to set this up as a Cuba thing right away, and that, you know, it's, it would be really interesting to know where the Lopez fellow fits into that because it seems to be to fit perfectly with what we already know. See, Paul in, in Paul's article. Um, he brings up this this whole rather kind of uh, minimized, I don't want to say it was ignored, okay, but this whole controversy about just what was the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in 1963. You know, Sergio Arcachis Smith, a suspect in the Garrison investigation, was actually... Uh, having a mini war with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee advocates in Florida. 
okay, at the time. All right. Now, in my opinion, when you have people like David Phillips, you have people like Jim McCord, you have people like Sergio Arcacha Smith, you know, all involved with the Anti-Fair Play for Cuba Committee campaign. And Oswald ends up being a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Can that all just be a coincidence? You know, and like you said, there were certain forces that were almost immediately accusing uh, Cuba, you know, of being involved in the Kennedy assassination. You mentioned Sturgis. Jeff Morley mentions uh, Carlos Bringier, okay, who got a broadsheet out, I believe, within 24 hours. You know, and I, I believe on the cover were pictures of Castro and Oswald, you know. So, and by the way, the CIA paid for that broadsheet. Okay, so, so I think that's, you know, kind of interesting that these forces that were involved uh, with the Central Intelligence Agency are now going ahead and putting out cover stories that Castro killed Kennedy, you know. And, and you know as well as I do, Castro made a speech that night, okay, saying words of the effect. You watch. They will try and blame this on us. They will try. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, he was he knew right away because he had been dealing with these people who tried to kill him over and over again. He was much right. more shrewd than American leftists. He was an actual, you know, man of action and a revolutionary. I think I, I've tried to figure out why the left in the U.S. is so bad on this, and I think part of it is that they depend on it. The only person who can be a professional leftist doing leftist stuff talking, you know, doing historiography or social science research or whatever, are people who have institutional support. And because the institutions don't typically support very harsh critics of the system, you know, then then they promote people like uh, that are the sort of respectable face of the left. So Cockburn, Coburn gets a, is a columnist, gets to be a columnist at the nation. They don't have any, you know, people who look at state conspiracies writing in that kind of a capacity. Chomsky's at MIT, you know. I mean, I guess you had people like Peter and Phil Melanson at universities, but they they did what they did after they had tenure and so on. It's just, you don't get, I think the left takes its cue from people that have prestige and it's in their own little sphere. And in academia or journalism, you discredit yourself by talking about these things. So as a result, the left just follows people who are sort of conditioned to not, to, to think in a certain way. We're really, it's made us powerless to deal with this, this kind of, this way that imperialism operates, I think, with the covert operations, because that you can't call a spade a spade. Mm. And it's really a mess. Let me, let me switch gears here a little bit again and ask about another angle here uh, that, you, that you write about, which I think is a, a bizarre part of the case. This is the, the impersonations of Oswald. So by now, you're, you're looking over this and many books that you have read on this subject. What parts of the, uh, the impersonation of Oswald would you say are the most like incontrovertible uh, that, that you, that, such that they constitute a, a chokehold collectively? Let me, let, let me give credit on this because 
that chapter was written by Matt Crumpton. Matt is an attorney in Ohio who's very knowledgeable. And he has a podcast called Solving JFK. He's done a lot of work on this case, and, and I give him a lot of credit for this. First of all, there's the impersonations of Oswald at the shooting range in November, okay, uh, where he actually shot at somebody else's target. <laughs> yeah. And the guy said, what do you think you're doing? And he said, words of the effect, oh, I thought I was shooting at that Kennedy guy. Okay, <laughs> so, so <laughs> I think I think that's kind of obvious, you know, that you're trying to make an indelible mark on somebody in advance of the Kennedy assassination, all right? And by the way, there was more than one witness to this. There was like three witnesses to an Oswald impersonator doing this kind of stuff in advance of the assassination. Uh, but the Warren Commission showed that this couldn't have been the real Oswald uh, because Oswald was really somewhere else at the time. So they didn't want to take it a step further and say, well, wait a minute, if Oswald was somewhere else at the time, then was somebody setting up Oswald in advance with this very incriminating evidence? They didn't want to take it that far. Okay, then there's the, uh, the uh, car dealership, okay? where a guy named Oswald goes into, I think, a Mercury Ford car dealership, uh, and he says, words of the effect, I'm going to buy a new car because I'm going to be coming into some big money soon. All right? And the guy goes, okay. Takes the car out for a spin. He says, driving it at about 70 miles an hour. Okay. All right. And talking about the money he's going to have. And then he comes back and says, no, I, I don't think I want that one. Okay. All right. Now, why would you drive a car? And his, and his name was Oswald. Okay. They recognized him as, as picture later. All right. Now, why would you do something like that? You know, drive at that, unless you were trying to make an indelible impression. So here we have... Oswald at a target range, and then we have Oswald, uh, you know, speed racing a car, saying he's going to come into some money on in, in advance of the Kennedy assassination. All right. Now, some other ones. Sylvia Odio. Sylvia Odio. Sylvia Odio was part of the Cuban exile community in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. She comes in to the door one night, and there's two guys there, two Cubans, with a Caucasian guy. And they want to know if they can raise any money, if she knows anybody who can, she was part of the liberal Cuban exile community, jury. All right. And and by the way, jury was the, was the one Cuban exile group Kennedy actually liked. Okay. And so... They were there for a few minutes, and her sister was there, Annie, okay? And they called this guy Osvaldo, okay, the third guy that was with them. So the next day, the Cuban exile calls back, and he says, you know, that Oswaldo guy is a little bit loony. 
he thinks that we should have shot Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs invasion, all right? And he's a good marksman, all right? So that's, that's the third one, okay? Now, here's the problem. The Warren Commission did not want to accept her testimony, even though she had lots of backup for it. She had written about it and talked about it before the assassination, all right? The reason they didn't want to accept her testimony was that they said that, well, that couldn't have been Oswald because Oswald was in Mexico City. Now, if you know anything about the case, this one should have you jumping out of your chair, okay? Because if ever there was evidence of an Oswald impersonation, it was in Mexico City, all right? Because even though Oswald was supposed to have been at both the Cuban and the Soviet embassies, all right, there is no picture of Oswald going in or out of either embassy. There should have been 10, okay? There should have been 10 pictures. There's none, all right? There also should have been a tape recording because the embassies were bugged, all right? Well, when the CIA sent up the tape recording to Dallas, to the FBI, because Hoover had some of his agents in there interrogating Oswald, they listened to the tape. And they said, the man on this tape is not the same as the man we're interrogating. He has a different voice, all right? So the CIA tried every way they could to prove that Oswald was in Mexico City, all right? Uh, they went to airports. They went to public airports, private airports, okay? They checked everything they could to try and find how he got down there. They couldn't find any. Any. So most people today, including myself, believe that Oswald was... So in other words, here's the question. Was Oswald in Mexico City or was he at Silvio Odio's door? Okay. That's a question that is very difficult to figure out because it was never really investigated at the time. All right. Does, now, does Richard Case Nagel meet Oswald in Mexico City or no? My, is that no? Nagel says that he went to Mexico with Oswald before that. Okay, prior to the one that we're talking about. Okay, the one that we're talking about is, I believe, something like September the twenty seventh to October the third. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's it's. Very much, there's not any solid evidence that Oswald was in Mexico City um, at the time that he was supposed to have been. And Sylvia, and there, there's evidence he was somewhere else because of Sylvia Odia's testimony, which is very specific and corroborated by other people, and which caused so much problems for the Warren Commission. I mean, that we saw them really going out of their way to try to discredit her. I don't, don't they have one of the uh, people basically intimidate her. One of the lawyers really. Oh yes. Sort of sexually yeah. Well, West, Wesley, Wesley Liebler. Okay. He said they were going to give her a polygraph test. Okay. To see if she was lying. Then he invited her up to his room and tried to seduce her. Okay. And the reason he tried to do that is because they were trying to make her out to be a woman of ill repute. 
to Earl Warren, so she couldn't be trusted. Okay, and by the way, there, there's there's other uh, there's other ones. There's, for example, uh, two people named Oswald who went to see Laura Cottrell at the Texas Employment Commission, and get this: this happened on the same day. Okay, uh, there's also a case where somebody wanted a ride to the Texas School Book Depository with a brown paper bag, okay, in advance of the assassination, all right? So there's also the Roger Craig thing, okay, where he said he saw a guy look just like Oswald coming down the embankment across the street from the uh, Texas School Book Depository. So there's all these cases of a second Oswald, all right, which, which, the Warren Commission did everything it could, you know, to deny. But Matt doesn't... Ruth, Ruth Payne plays a big role in the Mexico City angle, too, right? I mean, she was the one who had came up with evidence whenever they they were missing something, and then she would just emerge with the perfect yeah, piece And evidence. by the way, this, this is like weeks later. She says she came up with a Spanish-English uh, 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 dictionary, okay? All right. And so now what makes that unusual, of course, is that, and this is what Wesley Liebler said, okay, words of the effect, because not only did Ruth Payne come up with some stuff about Mexico City, so did Priscilla Johnson when she took over the escorting of Marina Oswald. You know, Wesley Lieber said, wait a minute. First we have Ruth Payne. Now we have Priscilla Johnson. This is August of 1964. So you're telling me the Dallas police and the FBI and the Secret Service who couldn't find this stuff, but these two housewives somehow do find stuff, okay? <laughs> that, the, that the authorities couldn't, you know? All right, so... Yeah, so for, Ruth, for Ruth, I mean, in her, we probably a number of our listeners have listened, have seen Max Good's movie on Ruth Payne, but... Is in her mind the the material that she turned over? Could would she have thought, in to rationalize her participation in this? Could she have thought that she was, you know, helping to avoid nuclear war with this? Because didn't it didn't it in some way kind of make Oswald somebody who wanted to work with communists perhaps, but was not successful at it? I mean, it's a it's a weird thing. Like what what? was her angle in, in all of this with this Mexico City thing? You know something? Explaining, that's a very good question. But trying to explain Ruth Payne's motivation for what she did, you know, is something that, you know, it's like the riddle of the Sphinx. You know, nobody, could, I don't think anybody's ever come up with, you know, a, a very good explanation as to what she did or why she did it, or why she insists, by the way, to this day, to this day, she's on that National Geographic special, okay? You know, which I heard is pretty horrible, all right? But to this day, 59 years later, 60, you know, she's still insisting that Oswald was the lone assassin, all right? And she does not, to put it mildly, I don't think she's, she's very fair to the man, okay? Now, Max Good's film, you know, is a good movie. Uh, in my opinion, it didn't go far enough. I would have gone even further, okay, with, with Ruth Payne.
But anyway, getting back to the book, Matt Crumpton, he wrote the chapter on this, the Oswald impersonations. And, and Matt did a very nice job on it. Okay. Uh, to be perfectly frank, you know, everyone who contributed, I thought, did a nice job. Okay, and and I think it's a pretty distinguished piece of work that brings up the the case today. You know, what's the forensic case today against Oswald? You know, and and as they say in England, you know, we came to the conclusion that there was no case to answer. Okay, that the case should never have been filed. Uh, and if you recall. After the Warren Commission, you had a series of lawyers who took a look at this case, all right? And Jim Garrison, Gary Hart, all right? Um, you had Dave Marston for the Church Committee and Gary Hart, all right? Then you had Bob Tannenbaum and Richard Sprague, the first chief counsel and deputy counsel for the... House Select Committee on Assassinations, Cornwell and Blakey, you know, they're also very, very suspect of the Warren Commission inquiry. Okay. You know, then you had Jeremy Gunn of the ARB, who said at a talk at Stanford University that he would much rather be defending Oswald than prosecuting Oswald. All right. Now, these are all lawyers. Okay. These are all lawyers. All right. And they all looked at the evidence and looked at the case. And these are the conclusions that they came to. So it's not just people like me and Aaron, okay, who are more or less academics. It's also people who have been in the courtroom, you know, and understand what the rules of evidence are. You know, who who have a very, very, and this is what we tried to collect, and this is why we had three lawyers, you know, working on this book, okay? Uh, I just don't believe any rational, objective person would be willing to vote Oswald guilty after listening to the evidence we have put together uh, in this volume. And it's one of the, I don't have to tell you about this, it's one of the very sinful crimes that the media, and as you mentioned earlier, it's not just the mainstream media, you know, it's also the supposed alternate left media, you know, has done an absolutely terrible job, you know, absolutely disgusting, you know, of informing the public of what the facts really were in this case. You mentioned Alexander Coburn. If you remember, Alexander Coburn, when JFK came out back in 1991-1992, okay, he did, I believe, three columns in Get This, The Nation, okay, essentially sounding off, okay, against Oliver Stone's movie, all right, and it really got kind of ridiculous. I mean, here you have what is supposed to be the emblematic magazine of the left in this country, the nation, you know, sponsoring this guy who somehow can't find one nice thing to say 
about Oliver Stone's film. All right. And it's very clear. And well, you know this. And I hope you don't mind me saying it. When Peter Scott wrote his original essay on Kennedy's withdrawal from Vietnam, it was actually printed in the Pentagon Papers, the second edition of the Pentagon Papers, what they call the Mike Gravel uh, series that I believe was uh, published by a publisher in Massachusetts called Beacon Press, all right? And I believe Nixon actually tried the preliminary steps to try and get it stopped from being published, all right? Well, Peter put this thing together, all right, showing that from evidence in the Pentagon Papers, Kennedy was probably going to get out of Vietnam. And at first, the editors of that volume, Zinn, Howard Zinn, and Noam Chomsky, did not want to publish it. And Zinn said words of the effect, and if I'm getting this story wrong, you can correct me, okay? Uh, Zinn said words of the effect, but it will make people believe that the president can do something. <laughs> The way that Peter tells the story is you're saying that it matters who was elected president, or you're saying that it matters who the president is. That's bad politics. <laughs> yeah. I have to laugh at this because, look, Zinn was supposed to be an historian, okay? All right, he's supposed to be writing history. He's not supposed to be writing politics. Well, he, okay. he came around later in life, by the way. He, at the end of his life, he said, yeah, there's enough, in the last few years, he said there's enough to, uh, evidence to call for reinvestigating 9-11, number one, and that uh, it probably Kennedy was killed by some mix of CIA and Cubans and mafia. <laughs> so it took him, what, 30 years later? to <laughs> Actually, probably more like 40, because this would have been around 2010. So. All right, so... And, and, and Chomsky went ahead and said, look, it's freedom of speech. We have to print the thing. Okay. So that's how. That's nice of him, at least. So that's, that's how it got originally printed. Now, that original essay was then, re, what most people, it was reprinted in two or three places after. It was re, in Ramparts. Okay. It was printed in Ramparts. And then it was in this book, Government by Gunplay, which was a very interesting anthology, all right, um, put out by, I, I believe, the JFK Assassination Information Bureau, okay, uh, in, I think, 70, 73 or something like that, or 74. And Peter, Peter changed it. He revised it, you know, in those various manifestations, all right? Now, the interesting thing about Govern My Gunplay, is that the co-editor was none other than Sidney Blumenthal, okay? Sidney Blumenthal later went on to be one of the most important advisors to Hillary Clinton, okay? You know, and you know what his nickname was? What's that? I, think, I may have heard of it. Tell me. His nickname was GK, Grassy Knoll. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> because evidently he was still pushing the Kennedy conspiracy, you know, when he was cavorting around with the Clintons. All right. Okay. So this is, you know, this is how resistant even the people on the left are, you know, to these ideas about, and I believe that what Coburn did is what you said it was. I, I believe that what Coburn did was political, you know, it, because I'm sorry, you know, the, the evidence is simply overwhelming now. And, and it, by the way, it was at that time, okay? You know, and so what he was doing was taking a political stand. We can't make the public think that whoever is president matters, you know, you know, which is not, that's not writing history, okay? That's writing ideology. One ironic thing about it is with Chomsky is that every time it's okay, if you've got that point of view, there's some, there's a, it's defensible to say it doesn't matter whether you like Democrats or Republicans, because mostly it doesn't. But ironically, every time there's an election, Chomsky is out there saying, you better vote Democrat. These Republicans. Right. Democrats. That's true. So it's like, okay, I can, if you want to make that argument about how the Republicans are terrible, that's an argument people make. But then you can't, why do you want to have your like, you know, your sort of disillusioned cake and eat, eating, be eating it too? You're like, don't say it matters who the president is, but make sure you vote. You will always vote Democrat no matter what. <laughs> like the establishment. In other words, in other words, he was he was, and and he was campaigning for Biden. Well, okay, Democrat in general. I mean, he doesn't. He's not out there stumping for them, but he's always saying vote Democrat. So this is just, yeah. this is really something. But let's let, let's look at something that's a little more positive here, and perhaps a shred of hope. Uh, here as we as we wrap this up it's the 60th anniversary here of this of the kennedy assassination and the new york times wrote that article a few months ago about uh was it what's the guy's name landis right um, yes who had found supposedly found the single bullet in the in the in the back seat of the limo which calls into question whether it actually was a single bullet and so on and so forth so they're basically saying like oh my gosh there's reason to doubt the kennedy assassination and they're letting David Talbot write an op-ed on the anniversary of the assassination as well. So they're taking a different approach than they did to the 50th. What do you think is this? And Tucker Carlson had that statement, you know, had that report saying that, like, every, according to a high-ranking source, somebody in the know, every CIA director since Kennedy has known that the CIA was involved in the uh, Kennedy assassination, and they don't do anything about it. I mean, do you think that the, is there a reason to think that there's hope for, here at the 60th, because I, I feel like the media is treating it differently, and I can't help but notice that this coincides with a time when it's pretty clear that the imperial crusade, which Kennedy tried to stop at the time, and which just basically overwhelmed him by shooting him in the middle of the road so it could continue, that that whole thing is running out of steam. Do you think that that has anything to do with why the media and the big flagship media like the Times they might be changing their tune, and is there? Do you do you have a sense that there's a hope for this uh, this time around? Well, you know something, I I I I can't really explain why this has come about, or apparently is coming about. Okay, at this particular time, I I, I really I really can't. But the Landis story, I believe, has something to do with it. 
because somehow, some way, Paul Landis, well, his book is a bestseller now, The Final Witness. All right. Thanks for the time. And, it can't be that good of a book. Okay. And he got a story in Vanity Fair, and he got a story in the New York Times by a guy named Peter Baker. All right. And they both seem to be sympathetic to his story. All right. We published an article by Vince Palomero at Kennedy's and King. And Vince is the foremost expert on the Secret Service in this case, you know, where he points out, well, there are some problems with Landis's story. Okay. And then we we also had an interview between Larry Schnapp and Jeff Morley with Landis to give Landis his fair share, his fair shake. All right. But I, I believe that has something to do with this. Okay. And as you said, David Talbot is now preparing uh, a column, you know, for the New York Times. He got in contact with me a couple of days ago and wanted to know if there were some things I could offer him up as, as new evidence, okay? And so, and, and, and let's not forget, Tucker Carlson actually devoted a 20-minute segment to how the CIA killed JFK. You know, and that probably got something like 7 million viewers, all right? Um, and, and isn't it odd that Fox would carry a story like that, all right? NBC, ABC, and CBS would not, but Fox would. That's that's really, really kind of an extraordinary irony, you know? Um, well, then they fired Carlson. And and it's even better than that. The week they fired Tucker Carlson, that was the week Oliver was going to be on his show. Okay, so uh, I take that you know, take that any way you want to. Okay, but uh, but you're you're correct. There does seem to be a confluence of ideas coming out at this time about whether or not the Warren Commission was correct. You know, the question has always been, what took so long when the evidence was so overwhelming that it was, you know, uh, maybe, you know, to give credit where it's due, Oliver Stone's documentary is still in the top 10 at Amazon for documentaries. It just sold in the Far East to Macau, Hong Kong, and Japan, you know. And this is two years after it was released at the Cannes Film Festival. So maybe, you know, maybe that has something to do with it also. I sure hope so. I would, I would hope so. I mean, it's, it's damning in the, it's, it's overall, you know, uh, presentation of the problems with the uh, official story. I mean, it basically destroys it. Uh, and, but at this, on, on the other hand, I, all, I think that there, even before it came out, there was enough reason to really... <laughs> Just dismantle it. I mean, even David David Talbot's brothers. When you understand that Robert what Robert Kennedy was doing, uh, then you, then it, it kind of calls into question everything that we would think about all of all of this. Even if you weren't so steeped in the forensic details, I just I, I what I wrote Jim in my dissertation and in my in the book version of it as well. I wrote that one way that this whole project of lawless imperialism of which this assassination apparatus is a part 
you know, in a crucial part, that one way that this might be unraveled is through the disclosure of spectacular uh, state secrets and crimes, really, that this might be something to shock the system. And I've argued in the past that it would be in the interest of the establishment, because as I've been writing this over the years, to me, it's clear the trajectory of the U.S. empire is that U.S. global primacy is it's going to crumble just as it does for every empire in world history, and that the U.S. being this really fully global empire, like nothing else that came before it, it's going to happen there too, and that they're left with the question of what do you do, and the, uh, how would you, in the past, you could have something like 9-11 would happen, or the Gulf of Tonkin incident, or whatever, and you use these things as spectacular ways to like start a war, you know, remember the main or something. But a revelation of like something like this could be a way to kind of reorient politics, but in a positive way. And I know it sounds crazy, but I, I really do think that the people that have been running the empire actually, they can't keep doing it anymore. It's somehow you have to fix this, but all of our sense-making institutions have been geared around this imperial project and things like denying you know, the Kennedy assassination and other issues to where we don't even know there's not a common sense in the public about the way our system actually is. And the people that are running it have a real problem because I think it's kind of unmanageable domestically and internationally now. And something like this, that's my, that's my hopium, whatever. I mean, pipe dream, whatever you want to say. <laughs> right? And I don't know that they're going to do it, but I actually think it's in their best interests. Even as I try to think of like, what are the interests of these lunatics who are running things well not they're not crazy they're very rational but but evil imperialists what could they want to do and what would be in their interest i actually think that it would be in their interest to do this and have some sort of truth and reconciliation process and then move to another stage of uh of, of what the u.s is going to be because this they can't keep doing what they're doing well i you know i've actually never thought of it that way okay but there might be some you know there might be some truth to that you know, the dismantling of the American empire, okay, that, uh, you know, uh, because it's become so unmanageable. But I, let me say this, and let me, let me sum up with this. Not very many people know about Kennedy's uh, Algeria speech, although we tried to uh, put it in Oliver's film, and we had Richard Mahoney talking about it. That was his 1957 speech in which he said that America should not be supporting the French Empire, trying to maintain its African colony in Algeria. All right. We saw what happened to this three years ago at Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam. Do we really want to repeat the same thing again? All right. We should be on the side of nationalism. Because imperialism is the enemy of freedom. By the way, that was the title of that speech. Imperialism, the enemy of freedom. Yeah. And he said, if we were really a true friend of Paris, we would be helping them to the negotiating table to find an easy way out of this colonial dilemma, you know, which they are not going to win. Our other objective should be to be freeing the rest of Africa from colonial empire. When Kennedy gave that speech, there were 150 editorials and columns <laughs> written about that speech. 
it created an earthquake, all right? And he called up his father and he said, did I make a mistake? You know, and Joe Kennedy said, you don't know how lucky you are. Months from now, they're going to realize you were correct, all right? And by the way, he was on the cover of Time Magazine seven months later, and the story inside was Man Out Front. Alastair Cook, the British uh, journalist, said that Kennedy has made himself demand to hate on the Republican side, which is going to go ahead and make him the prime candidate for the 1960 election, which is what happened. And see, Kennedy, in that speech, he said, literally, we do not want to be on the wrong side of history. And I find this so interesting because today, with the Road and Beltway project, with the rise of BRICS, we are on the wrong side of history, okay? That is what really happened. You know, we have been really ever since the end of World War II. I mean, Kennedy, there there were things that were done to try. Like you have Eisenhower siding with Nasser in '56. Up up through Kennedy, you still had some concern. In Kennedy's case, genuine concern for third world nationalism, and in the rest of the government, a concern for at least appearing like you're not neo-colonial imperialists. But after Kennedy, it takes a hard right turn. Yes. I mean, you go from what he did with Israel, for example, you have the Kennedy standing up to Ben-Gurion on nukes and the uh, Palestinian, you know, resettlement issue. You go from that to Johnson basically uh, ignoring the fact that they attacked him during the Six Day War and take over the whole, occupy the, all the Palestinian territories. I mean, and then, of course, everything else, Indonesia, Brazil, Congo, Vietnam War. I mean, that's really, it's really quite uh, an amazing uh, shift. Okay, the book is The JFK Assassination Chokeholds, and you can order it right now and um, in both ebook form and in paperback form. And I think the hardcover is going to be print on demand. Okay, we're working on an Audible. Paul Blow is actually working on a French version. Okay, to sell in both Quebec and, uh, and overseas in France. All right, thank you so much for having me on, Aaron. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jim, for talking with us on this important anniversary. The book is excellent. I recommend it, and I'll put a link to it in the, uh, in the show notes. And uh, just thanks so much again, Jim. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Mock Orange for providing the music. This episode is public, but you can find a whole lot more material in this vein by subscribing to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. I'm honored to have Jim on for the 60th anniversary. I hope people read his book, uh, the book from him and these other guys that have, like Paul Blow, who've been working with Jim for a while now. There's a link there to the show notes uh, to the book, and it really is a surgical demolition of the state's case against Oswald and really looks at the JFK assassination in a pretty compelling light. Strange as it sounds, I am optimistic that we might get the truth about the JFK assassination. It's like the English playwright who said, treason doth not prosper, 
what's the reason? When it prosper, none dare call it treason. Well, the empire whose clandestine fascist apparatus killed JFK, that empire is no longer prospering. Part of this loss of hegemony is the loss of the ability to impose mythical narratives on the public. I am hoping that it will soon become clear to more and more people, and eventually to people in power, that we must face the truth about where we are and how we got here. Like Jim all these years, researching and writing about Dallas, we have to keep chasing the light. 